FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a lot to talk about on the show today, including a U.S. Supreme Court case, which is going to have an impact on uh, an enormous number of uh, Georgians who are carrying student debt. We're going to talk about that. We'll talk about Buckhead Cityhood. Um, We're going to talk a bit about what's happening down at the state legislature and other issues with our panel today. So let me get right to introducing them. Tamar Hellerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us, as she is on Tuesdays. And Tamar, at some point during the show, we're going to also talk to you about your interview with Emily Coors, the foreperson of the special grand jury who caused quite a splash when she talked to a number of media outlets uh, a week or so ago. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts about having uh, sat down with her uh, because she has become a, a high-profile figure out of nowhere tomorrow. Yeah, spoofed on SNL last Saturday, so newly minted in that respect as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we'll get to that at some point today. Matt Brown, who is a democracy reporter for the Washington Post, based out of Atlanta, is with us. And Matt, you have a story uh, in the Post today that we'll get to. Um, uh, former President Obama has launched a new uh, project uh, in which he is going to try to cultivate leaders who can work on local civic issues in a bipartisan or more, I think, specifically nonpartisan way um, as they try to do, uh, develop them, the uh, organization, for roles in leadership. Have I got that about right? Yep, Bill, that's about right. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, talking with his people, what this is going to transform into as they start in, you know, three cities, but then have told me that they're really going to try to aggressively expand it across the country. Well, we'll uh, at least get to some of that a little bit later on in the show. We're joined by uh, two top political science professors in Georgia, Professor Emeritus of Political Science, Alan Abramowitz of Emory University. Alan, thank you for joining us today. You're muted, Alan. Alan, you're muted. So, sorry while about we're that. Try- yeah, glad, glad there, to be there. You go. Glad to be glad, glad to be here in Georgia after hearing that weather report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And by the way, <laughs> glad to be able to hear your voice on the show as well. And Professor Charles Bullock. Not an emeritus professor, Chuck Bullock, still going strong as a professor of political science at the University of Georgia uh, after many years of establishing himself as I always call him the dean of political science professors in Georgia, if not the Southeast. How you doing, Chuck? I'm doing well. I just keep working at it, trying to get it right. Yeah, <laughs> you, you and me both, Chuck. We're not going to let age stop us from enjoying our work. All right, let's talk about the um, Supreme Court case today, Tamar, because it it really is a, an extraordinarily significant case for a number of reasons. 
we'll get into. And, and I'd like to start by pointing out that um, since President Biden announced that uh, his administration would forgive up to $20,000 of student loan debt, depending on income level, anywhere from ten dollars to $20,000, since he announced the executive action on that program, more than a million Georgians, 1,012,000 Georgians have filed loan applications and 642,000 of them have been fully approved. All of that is on hold as appeals court have said, no, 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 not so fast. There are issues here. And that's why the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing the case today. Tamar? Yeah. And there's a couple of kind of wonky D.C. issues that they're going to have to untangle before we can even get to the the meat of the argument. Um, the first is whether the, the folks who are bringing this case have standing, whether they're financially harmed by this policy. And if the idea is that you're lifting this burden of student debt on people, um, they're going to have to provide convincing arguments that, that no, they're still hurt by this. Um, they also are going to have to argue that this law that kind of created the authorization for, for President Biden to do this, it's called the HEROES Act. It was passed in the aftermath of 9-11. And my understanding was that it was created to allow soldiers who were serving in, it was either Iraq or Afghanistan, so they wouldn't be harmed by their student loan repayments while they were serving the country. So it kind of put that on hold why there was this emergency declaration. So there's also a question of whether this law that was passed two decades ago, whether that's applicable in this situation. Um, and that's even before we start talking about a lot of the issues at hand. Um, and so I'll be very interested to see where this conservative Supreme Court comes down. Uh, so, Matt, uh, just to expand on what Tamar started us off with, there are actually two different cases uh, related to the uh, HEROES Act that the court will hear today. Uh, one of them was brought by six states with Republican attorneys general. Um, and the second was brought by two individuals in Texas who were denied uh, relief under the HEROES Act and who have uh, brought a separate challenge. And, and as Tamar points out, really, the question about the meat of this case, whether the executive branch has the power to independently take this action or needs Congress to approve it, we may not even get to it if the Supreme Court decides right away that neither of these uh, uh, cases uh, follow the law rules of standing, Matt? Right. I think that it's really important to note that this is going to be a bit of a two-step here with the Supreme Court. And depending on which stage we get to is going to be very crucial to see whether or not the Biden administration is going to be able to implement this student loan forgiveness plan. So the first question is, as we've all said, standing, which is do these Republican attorneys general and do the two individuals who are represented in this case do they have the standing to do this? What that is essentially going to hinge on, especially for those two students, is that they the loans that they had taken out were not necessarily eligible under the policy infrastructure that the education department rolled out in the forgiveness plan. That's because of you know some wonky history on like what types of loans you'd brought out and whether they were too old or not to, to be eligible under this, basically. So because of that, the question then is whether the administration's power 
was broad enough to actually do this question. So if we just if we just have this resolved in the standing case, then this will be you know thrown out, and that's what the Biden administration has been arguing all along. If we get to the merits of whether or not they have this power, though, then we get back into Bush era questions of the law and stuff. And I think it's important to to remember that this was all around 9/11 when the Congress was willing to give a lot of very broad powers to the executive branch, and it wasn't necessarily conceived of that we might be applying it in this particular way 20-something years later. But potentially, we could be seeing that a more conservative Supreme Court, as we have now, might say, maybe this isn't actually what we'd want to do, even if the letter of the law actually is incredibly broad to what powers Congress gave the presidency at the time. And and Chuck and then Ellen, and what Matt just described <clears throat> is really the heart of this uh, matter if it moves forward past the standing question. And that is the extent of the executive powers that a president has, and not just in this, but in other matters as well, but specifically in this case, uh, to in fact forgive what amounts to $430 billion of student debt or whether or not Congress had to be involved in that. And let me just, Chuck, background it a little bit more. During the pandemic, when Donald Trump was in power, his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, did put a hold on repayment of student loans because of hardships in the pandemic. Not only did she put an initial hold on it, but the Trump administration subsequently added a longer hold. Uh, Biden campaigned to eliminate, or, or I'm sorry, to reduce dramatically student debt for many people. And so that's when the, he uh, uh, triggered the HEROES Act. Um, but that's going to end when the COVID emergency comes to an end. I think it's May 1st. It's at that date that uh, students, former students, would presumably have to begin repaying their loans for the first time in more than three years. So with all that said, the argument here, Chuck, is what prevails? The HEROES Act, which gives the president and his administration the power to make a, uh, an order like this, or what's called the Major Questions Act, which requires the Congress be involved in giving a stamp of approval to expenditures this large. Chuck and then Alan. Yeah, often in the past, what the court has done is to avoid getting to the real meat of the issue and try to dispose of an issue on the procedural grounds, in which case then, yeah, they could say that none of the parties here have standing and therefore we're not going to rule on this. But you know, what does an activist court do? Is this an activist court? If it's an activist court, then it wants to get into the real issue. It doesn't want to just kind of take care of it as a procedural issue. An activist court, an activist court may look at this through political lens. So college-educated voters tend to vote Democratic. A lot of these individuals who are going, who would be have loan forgiveness might well, as a result of their college educations, uh, their view of the world, be inclined to vote for Democrats. Now, those who are not benefiting, those who didn't go to college, those who maybe more blue-collar workers, all right, that's now become the meat of the Republican Party. We've seen the parties kind of flip in terms of where they're getting their strength from. And so it's the non-college-educated voter, particularly among white voters, who are very much up for grabs in a state like Georgia, uh, those voters are going to be Republicans. So if this uh, 6-3 conservative majority 
responds in a political fashion, then they may want to get into this. They may want to come forward and say, no, we're not going to allow this forgiveness to go forward because a lot of potential Republican voters aren't benefiting from it. They don't see a reason why their tax money should go to pay off the college debts of uh, folks who got to go to college when they didn't. Alan? Well, I, I think that uh, Chuck Scott is exactly right. That um, and, and in fact, I'd, I'd be very surprised if the, this court, given its con, uh, you know, conservative makeup uh, and activist bent, uh, doesn't uh, find some way to, uh, to to block this this law, um, you know, uh, this is uh, a, a a law that is uh, represents a considerable you know expansion of executive power. Aside from the question of who benefits from this action, um, it's executive power being being uh, used in this case by a Democratic administration, um, and I you know expect that the majority, the conservative majority on the court. Um, is going to find some way to say, no, you can't do that without uh, action by Congress. Piggybacking off of what what Alan just said, this, I think, is a continuation of a debate of what happens in Washington when you have such a closely divided Congress that can't even do the basics of governing. It can't pass budgets, um, much less deal with thorny issues like education policy in America and how the costs of college get get passed on to, to students. And so we've seen again and again and again in the last 15, 20 plus years of presidents getting frustrated by how little Congress can do. And so they take it upon themselves using executive actions to try and get around Congress. And inevitably, this stuff ends up in front of the Supreme Court, which ends up adjudicating a lot of these issues. I I think a lot about uh, war powers uh, when I was covering Capitol Hill and presidents again and again were relying on authorizations from the Iraq war 20 some years ago. And of course, people weren't thinking about the Islamic State or or kind of whatever Russia or whatever kind of foreign policy battles of today when they pass that authorization. Uh, but because Congress is so closely divided, they know that they couldn't get anything through today or maybe they didn't want to. This, I think, is another flavor of that same fight. Um, Matt, I want to pick up on, on a couple of points that have been made in this last round here of, of, of people talking. Um, one of them is uh, uh, Chuck Bullock talking about the partisanship uh, behind all this. Um, one of the biggest complaints about the HEROES Act uh, has come from, uh, as Chuck points out, uh, Republicans, Republican voters who say, we didn't go to college. Why should we be expected to pick up the tab for all of these people who uh, can't repay or are reluctant to repay uh, their loan debt. So that's been um, uh, an issue that is strictly partisan in many ways. Um, and, and the other thing I think we should uh, point out is um, this court has on three occasions struck down executive actions using the major questions uh, 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 clause as their excuse, saying, no, 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 the Biden administration does not have the power to, among other things, uh, insist that businesses either require uh, vaccinations for their employees or testing. That was struck down. The court took two other actions to strike down um, 
uh, executive actions of President Biden. So uh, they got a record of being unfriendly to his uh, attempts to use executive action. Right. I think that it's fair to say that this is, an, is that this is a Supreme Court that is very skeptical of, if not creative uses of executive power, then at least the novel arguments that the Biden administration has put in place in this administration. I think that it's important to note in that conversation that what we're going to be seeing today and what we should be looking out for is is not so much the political arguments that are going to be made by folks outside of the court, but whether or not this Supreme Court is going to be interested in being deferential to executive power in a way that may preserve the letter of the law that's been given, but not necessarily maybe in maybe curtail what the Biden administration is particularly doing. Like in, for instance, they decided not to do it on, um, you know, in other cases, but it is possible to, to restrict the particular use of executive power in a situation without trying to eliminate the entire principle of what you're necessarily arguing for or what has been put into statute. And it's going to be interesting to see if the court tries to do something like that and thread a needle where they say, maybe we're not um, supportive of this entire regime that you've come up with for student loan relief, but the principle itself might be something that we can support or, um, it's going to be interesting to see if they try to throw that needle or if they just throw the whole thing out and the powers that, um, you know, is connected with it wholesale. Uh, Alan, before we move on to other subjects, it's interesting that one of the uh, uh, most uh, high profile critics of the Biden administration loan relief plan happens to have been the former Speaker of the U.S. House, Nancy Pelosi, whose uh, quote is no doubt going to come up. If this case moves forward today, she said uh, in 2021, summer of 2021, that Biden cannot forgive the debts without new legislation. And her exact quote was, he can postpone, he can delay, but he does not have that power. That would best be an act of Congress, says Democratic former Speaker Nancy Pelosi. You can be sure that that quote is going to be cited by by the um, but by those who are challenging challenging the law. So uh, you know, and given the, the the kind of pretty radical bent of the conservatives on this court, however, I'm uh, I mean, I, I just would be shocked if if they don't you know just throw the whole thing out. There, I don't I don't think they're going to try to thread the needle uh, as as Matt was describing it. Certainly, that's something that we've seen in the past. Uh, but I don't see that with this court. We didn't see it on abortion, and I don't think we're going to see it on this issue either. Um, finally, Chuck Bullock, you really uh, uh, brought up this notion of the partisanship that's involved in cases like this. Are, are we really at a point where actions like this, or or uh, really there's no action yet, but where the decision the court will make on this is going to be viewed strictly through a partisan lens. And will that be a correct way to interpret if they, in fact, throw out the uh, loan relief program? Well, I think it very much will, yeah. I think that's the way people are viewing the courts as just another political entity. So they expect the Congress is going to be very much political, Democrats versus Republicans, and also the president. But one of the things which the court has been able to do in the past was to stand above that. Now, the fact that it often now at least is perceived as acting in a partisan fashion 
I think we see a manifestation of that when we see how relatively low public opinion is of the court now, that the court used to be able to ride high on terms of favorable job approvals, and that's no longer the case. So it's down there being viewed by the public just as if it were another political entity. And finally, uh, Tamar, let's um, point out what could happen next. The court's ruling probably will not be released until early, you know, either May or June when the controversial rulings later in June usually come out. If, in fact, they throw this out, they say, no, the president did not have this authority, Congress could act. But there's no way in the world that a Republican majority U.S. House uh, is likely to uh, take up this measure and pass this kind of multi-billion dollar relief for college, uh, former college students, yes? Absolutely not. Um, they've shown that they're not interested in that. And as we've talked about, like who many of their supporters are, and many didn't go to college, so they see it. why favor uh, this one group and this one group that's much more likely to favor Democrats. And I mean, we saw how hard it was for the House to even elect a speaker, a Republican majority with only, I think, four seats, four seat majority. And it took how many ballots to get Kevin McCarthy in? It's going to be a challenge for this Congress to do the bare minimum in terms of governing, in terms of keeping the lights on for the federal government and preventing a default of the debt. I don't think we're going to see much uh, beyond, you know, some investigations of the Biden administration. But in terms of big sweeping legislation, don't expect that this next two years. Well, uh, uh, to put a, a period on this part of the conversation, I suspect that of those 1,012,000 Georgians who have applied for relief, while maybe they are more Democratic than Republican, we don't know that for a fact, there's no question there are Republicans in there who really are hoping that they, too, can get some help in paying off student loans. So we're going to watch this case as it unfolds and uh, wait for a decision uh, it, unless they throw it out for lack of standing very quickly. We won't hear about the decision on this until a few months down the road. Why don't we do this? Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Political science professors Charles Bullock and Alan Abramowitz and Washington Post reporter Matt Brown and Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, join me for today's Political uh, Rewind. Um, Tamar, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the Buckhead uh, cityhood bills. There are two of them that passed out of a uh, Georgia Senate committee yesterday and are presumably on their way to the Rules Committee where uh, it will be determined when the vote, when they may be called up to go out to the floor. Of course, the Rules Committee, for people who aren't familiar with how the process works necessarily, it's the Rules Committee that determines what bills are on or are not on the calendar. And since the chair of the Rules Committee, 
as one of the sponsors of one of the Buckhead cityhood bills, here's a good chance it'll come to the floor for a vote. And tomorrow, the fact of the matter is that Buckhead cityhood has never advanced to this point in the legislature until now. Yeah. I mean, last year, this uh, this same issue was quickly bottled up before uh either chamber had a chance to to act. So this is definitely a symbolic incremental victory for the Buckhead cityhood folks. And while it does seem to have a path in the more conservative Senate, I wonder what's going to happen in the House. Uh, Speaker Burns was pretty noncommittal on the issue, and Governor Kemp hasn't weighed in on it either. Um, so we don't know what's really going on here, although we know that the governor has built a pretty good relationship with Mayor Dickens in a way that he didn't have with Keisha Lance Bottoms. And so I wonder if as a favor for his uh, working partner, if he'll try and kind of stomp this before it gets much momentum in the House. Um, but some pretty remarkable details that have emerged in this um this cycle in terms of what these these bills would mean. I know one of the big questions was how much uh, money they would have to pay for for parks, things like Chastain Park, where you know land there is so valuable, and some pretty shocking details in this legislation. They'd only have to pay a hundred dollars per acre. I want to get in on that deal. <laughs> you know, uh, the water system only a hundred thousand dollars. School facilities a thousand dollar a piece. Uh, what a fire sale. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Chuck, I, I want to put this in a larger context. There was a time that you'll remember quite well when Thomas B. Murphy was Speaker of the Georgia House, a rural legislator who built his ruling coalition around other what we called yellow dog Democrats, mostly rural and ex-urban Democrats. But Thomas Murphy always said to them, we have to protect the city of Atlanta, which is why he supported the initial MARTA bill as an example. Things have changed dramatically. This Buckhead cityhood bill, the two bills, are being advanced strictly by people far away from uh, Buckhead and, uh, and, and don't seem to have much concern at all for the economic engine that the city of Atlanta is. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is something a throwback even further in time than Tom Murphy, and then we'd be back, say, all the way to Gene Talmadge. Mm -hmm. And the political attitudes of that day were, you know, the outstate jealous, did not like, not going to do anything for the city of Atlanta. And uh, there's been talk a few years ago about taking the airport away, okay? Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing here is a continuation of this. Folks who don't come from Atlanta wanting to essentially punish the city, and especially when we talk about you know giving away these items that the city has. So not only strip it of the population, but strip it financially, leave it very much uh, encumbered. So Murphy, although yes, you're right, he was a rural legislator. He broke with that rural tradition of jealousy directed towards the city and was of the mind that what's good for Atlanta is good for Georgia because that's the economic engine driving this whole state. So yeah, I don't think that the speaker is going to get on board with this. And the difference between this year and last year was that uh, you know, the lieutenant governor and the uh, majority leader of the president pro tem of the Senate were also not interested in, in taking it out on Atlanta. So it's a different crowd in charge of the Senate. And that's why it's moving there. I think maybe the House is really more akin to where Speaker Ralston was and therefore is not going to jump on, on Atlanta now that it's uh, being attacked by by some folks.
Alan? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the most interesting things about this is that um, we're it, it's just revealing this divide, I think, with that exists within the Republican Party in the state of Georgia uh, between the sort of Trump <laughs> wing and, and what you might call the camp uh, wing of the, of the party, the, the more sort of conventional conservative wing of the party. Um, and it's it's definitely the the Trumpers who are seem to be the ones who are definitely pushing this Buckhead cityhood. I I don't see this particular bill, these two bills, as a serious uh, proposals. Uh, I I think that they're largely symbolic. They're largely aimed at, at sort of sticking it to the city of Atlanta. That that's the message here. Um, that uh, we don't like what's going on there, uh, and so you know we're going to support. Uh, this uh, this this effort to remove Buckhead from the city of Atlanta. It's not not going anywhere uh, in the near future, um, but I think it's sending a message and it's it's cultivating, it's appealing to the base, to the hardcore conservative base of the Republican Party. That's who these legislators represent who are um, introducing these bills. Um, but again, I, I don't see any likelihood that this is going to become law. But Matt, um... There is another aspect to this. On our show yesterday, uh, Andra Gillespie uh, pointed out that she finds it difficult to view what's happening here without considering the racial implications of these white, outlying legislators looking to break off uh, Buckhead because of their concerns (laughs) about rampant crime in the city of Atlanta, Matt. Right, exactly. And it's not a discussion necessarily about the places in Atlanta that are, you know, suffering the most from XYZ, you know, types of crime. It's it's particularly protecting Buckhead, which is obviously one of the richest and um, most economically productive and also, quite frankly, whitest parts of the city. So that I, Andre is correct to bring up that, that point in that discourse, which I think brings to a larger and broader question over that this is just not necessarily how when you normally see healthy, well-constructed debates over, you know, civic engagement and, you know, your ability to determine your own rights and identity in a democracy, that's usually a locally driven force from the people of the area. What you're seeing here is that even though there is a Buckhead City movement within Buckhead, that movement is largely now being, you know, uplifted and co-opted by people who are very, very far afield from that. So this is just not necessarily how when you normally see, um, you know, self-determination happen in politics, that this this is a, a bit of a, a bit of a hijacked case here. And I think that it also just speaks broader to something that we're seeing in this broader Southeast region, which is when you look at, you know, Jackson, Mississippi right now, you're also seeing the Mississippi state legislature crack down a lot on um, expand on taking power away from Jackson, expanding, um, you know, the Capitol Police force there, making it so that there's, you know, a state run um, alternative systems to the city. In Nashville, you're seeing similar things down in Orlando. It's an interesting trend here in the entire region where states are really saying we don't trust our cities for a variety of reasons um, we can to which we can speculate. We don't trust them to govern themselves, basically, and we feel like we need to go in and govern them instead. Um, Tamar, uh, uh, we're going to go into this in more detail with our panel tomorrow, but one of the themes that really is emerging in a big way in this session of the, of the Republican-dominated legislator lecture is um, the state efforts by Republicans to insert themselves much more deeply into the local affairs 
of municipalities and ju- other jurisdictions um, in the state of Georgia. It's happening up in Cobb County, where they have uh, redrawn district rule uh, lines that took a Democrat out of uh, her seat in the uh, uh, Cobb County Commission. It's happening down in Ware County, where they're trying to replace a bipartisan election commission with a commission that'll be dominated by Republicans. It's certainly happening in the Buckhead City movement. So it's fascinating to see that this has become an issue writ large this year by this legislature. And I mean, it's coming in places where there has been a party, where there's been demographic changes, where we've seen more people of color move in, um, and also where we've seen a change in terms of the the party in control of those bodies. So we saw Cobb this last 10 years kind of flip from being a, a Republican stronghold f- for many decades to now being, you know, electing many Democrats. And so I think it fits into... Um, you know, this broader kind of red meat, let's stick our thumb in the eye of mm-hmm. of these, you know, liberals in these cities. Um, and also these culture wars, you know, these liberals in these cities don't share our values. Um, and so, uh, you know, Republicans right now have the votes. I'll, I'm curious to see how far these measures will grow. go. I'm not convinced that this Buckhead Cityhood issue will, will move through this, this year, but some of these other more local efforts might. Alan? part of this sort of broader national trend that that we're seeing um where we're seeing uh in states that have republican governors and legislatures that there is an effort to uh impose greater control uh on the on the um on the actions uh, and policies of uh the uh, big urban cities the larger cities that are uh, almost always controlled by Democrats, and where you also have large concentrations of uh, of black and brown voters. Um, and so we're seeing the sort of racial divide uh, and partisan divide uh, play out in those states. Georgia is one example of that we have Republican governor and legislature. We have a, you know, Democratic-controlled cities, uh, and now, in many cases, sort of suburbs as well. Um, and um, state, you know, this politicians at the state level are, are com- coming in to try to exert greater greater control there. The interesting t- difference here is this divide within the Republican Party. However, uh, I think we're seeing that's not it's not all the Republicans who all Republicans are not on board necessarily with this. Chuck, yeah, what I think we're also seeing here is uh, another element that's played out in the past, and that is as a party begins to lose some of its control, it begins to change the rules to its favor. So we saw when Democrats were under pressure back Mm -hmm. a generation ago, they changed the threshold for winning a general election to U.S. Senate. We saw them also change the makeup of the way which we choose our public service commission. So they created single member districts thinking they could hold on to some of those. So, yeah, uh, (laughs) there may be different kinds of explanations for the rules changes we're seeing today. But for a party that feels under threat, does it change the rules to help itself? Yeah, it's probably going to do that. All right. uh, Let's do this. Let's go to our final break of the show right now. And when we come back, a lot more on Political Rewind.
Matt Brown, I want to take up one quick legislative uh, uh, story before we <laughs> turn to hear Tamar Hallerman talk to us about what it was like to interview Emily Coors, the foreperson of the special grand jury. Um, Georgia has the second lowest cigarette tax in the country. There's been an effort this session by a Republican, led by a Republican, to increase it just in many ways incrementally. Um, and, and, of course, public health is an issue here. So it's lost revenue the state could be collecting. And it appears that this issue is simply not going anywhere in part because the lobbying, the tobacco lobby is pretty strong, but maybe more important because the Republican controlled legislature simply does not want to do anything that would say they favor an increase in taxes, Matt. Right. I think that this is an interesting case here where you're seeing setting aside the lobbying efforts of the tobacco industry, which obviously has a lot of interest here in Georgia. It is an interesting thing to see, you know, the two countervailing impulses here that I think come up a lot when you look at um, questions in conservative politics here in Georgia and across the southeast of whether we value, you know, sin taxes and, you know, imposing a certain morality health. This is obviously, um, Chuck can talk about this a lot, but has a long tradition in um, Southern and conservative politics. Or do we more value this kind of like libertarian ethos, um, you know, a pro-business mindset that we don't want to, you know, infringe on anything that could even potentially um, have a whiff of um, telling people what to do, shall we say, or how they live their lives. And if, you know, they want to smoke and, you know, sell cigarettes to people, then that's their, you know, God-given right as well. So the question is, which of these two impulses is ever going to um, come out on top. And right now it seems like they're like the impulse is to let people smoke it as much as they'd like. So Chuck, uh, Matt kind of tosses the ball to you on this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right. So uh, I, I suspect we still have a number of legislators who've taken a pledge when they were running for office. They would never vote for any kind of tax increase, even a modest one, and even something often referred to as a sin tax. And that then fits in with the broader perspective of what Republicans think makes a state an attractive place to come and do business. And the idea is that you have the lowest possible tax burden, uh, and, and that's what draws in businesses. Now, a Democratic perspective, and again, in Georgia, Southern Democrats were never big on taxes, but they were willing to raise taxes for things such as education infrastructure. And so we have a partisan divide here, and it's just playing out again in this particular kind of tax here, that if you don't believe in taxes, period, you're not going to vote for this one or, or, or any other kind of tax increases. All right. Um, we're going to watch to see if that bill goes anywhere. I just wanted to bring it up briefly. Um, and uh, again, on tomorrow's show, we're going to dive a little more deeply into a number of issues that are bubbling up during the session as they head toward uh, crossover day down there. All right, tomorrow. Emily Coors, uh, what it was it a week or so ago, the foreperson of the special grand jury decided she wanted to talk about what happened in the grand jury. She gave interviews to uh, s several news organizations, and you had the chance to talk with her. She certainly made a splash. She, at least in the TV interviews she gave, showed this enormous ebullience and exuberance about the role that she played and that the other grand jurors played. She dropped hints that maybe Donald Trump 
Uh, they recommended he be indicted. She hinted at that. She did say that they recommended a number of other indictments, although she wouldn't name people. And her appearances and her print interviews have led to a lot of controversy. So why don't you start by telling us what it was like to interview her in the first place? Sure. It was a bit surreal and it didn't really fully hit me how surreal it was until like hours later. And I was just like, wow, I can't believe this just happened. You know, we were looking for grand jurors who would want to talk, but we never expected somebody to come out, use their name, put their face out there and be so open and informal, which I think is a lot of what this backlash centers on. There, there wasn't this somber mood to match the how solemn these proceedings could be and how serious these potential charges could be. And I think that's why folks really freaked out about her. Um, my colleague, Bill Rankin, and I sat down with her for 90 minutes a week ago today. Um, we came out with a story on Tuesday, but we also have more of her comments that we're going to air in our next episode of Breakdown, which is our podcast about the grand jury investigation tomorrow. So stay tuned. We have a lot more with her. Um, and look, I found her to be a pretty genuine person. I, um, you know, I don't believe these crazy internet rumors that she's a Trump plant who was there to, <laughs> to overthrow the, the investigation or anything like that. I think she was genuinely so excited and jazzed that she got a front row seat to all of this and that she got to swear in people like the governor and Rudy Giuliani. And I just think she was so excited to talk about it after eight months of not being able to say anything that she definitely got over her skis. And I don't think she had any media training. I don't think anyone told her, you know, even though this is something you might want to tell your friends at a barbecue, you might not necessarily want to bring kind of the OMG, this is so cool attitude out there into the press. And, um, you know, she certainly has gotten reamed for it on, on social media. Uh, Matt, uh, Judge McBurney gave her a certain amount of cover. Uh, he basically said uh, that she did follow the instructions that he gave to the special grand jurors in the sense that she certainly didn't violate any privilege, uh, that her comments were all t t uh, directed at presentations the grand jury, special grand jury heard, not deliberations of the special grand jury. Um, but Matt, uh, whether she violated any rules of the, that the court laid down, whether she acted illegally, which is what some people are contending, is an entirely different matter. And once again, just plays into the partisan divide. Yes. Right, absolutely. And and when we were doing reporting on um, following up on this, talking to different legal experts, I was really struck by the difference between the local Georgia experts who, you know, live in Georgia, work in Georgia, cover Georgia law and know it to the letter who said, no, she didn't. Like, I might think that this was a bit of a thing that she shouldn't have done, but she definitely did not break the law versus, you know, folks in other states who might cover federal cases more closely or who might not be as familiar with Georgia law, who were simply just horrified by the optics and say, well, there has to be something improper about this because for instance in federal cases you actually cannot talk about anything that you did on a special grand jury so a lot i think a lot of folks nationally when they saw this um appearing on cnn and nbc they were a bit confused on why this was even possible just because a case this high profile is normally something where you're entirely sworn to secrecy chuck um the question is whether this in any way uh beyond just the publicity uh value hurts 
Fannie Willis's uh, next steps in terms of bringing indictments. I mean, it doesn't obviously have have any legal bearing, but what is it going to mean if indictments are brought and and how what she said is parsed again by the partisan universe? Yeah, what, what I think is going to happen, I assume that there will be indictments, there will be trials, and in those trials, uh, there is you know, you're ultimately appealing to the jury, but you're also to some extent playing to a broader public. And so it's at that point that uh, she and some of the things she said and her images are going to be used by the defense attorneys to undercut the idea that this was a serious nonpartisan exploration of what happened surrounding the elections and the two months afterwards. And so that may then plant the seed of doubt uh, both in the general public when it looks at whatever the decisions come out of a trial on down the road, but might also then be used to raise questions in the minds of some jurors, you know, people who have seen this and then get tapped to sit on those juries in terms of, uh, you know, if you're looking for a reason not to to convict, you might look at this and say, yeah, I just don't think that the whole process that led to this trial and ultimately a jury uh, played out the way it should have. It wasn't serious. It was, uh, as, as the part is, it was a circus or a clown car is what we're hearing, the way it described. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, legally it probably doesn't really uh, affect anything. I don't think it will affect ultimately what Fonnie Willis herself decides to do in terms of bringing forward indictments, but but this is something that will certainly come up in the trials. It's already been brought up by defense attorneys for some of the potential uh, defendants here. It will certainly come up in the trials and and the uh, and and it will be used uh, in order to try to portray the entire process as one tainted by partisanship, uh, largely the along, along party lines. And you know, it's also been a, a, a bit of an issue, a bit of an issue even before this. Um, you know, because of the fact that Bonnie Willis is an elected Democratic uh, official and, and and has been involved, you know, been involved in some activities, um, fundraising and, you know, for uh, Democratic candidates and things like that. Um, so th- that is going to be an important part of the defense. Whether it's successful or not remains to be seen, um, because there's a lot of evidence here, I think, that there was, in fact, an effort to interfere uh in in the election uh so so it's going to be fascinating to watch this play out tomorrow i think the the ultimate danger of this and as i've talked to legal analysts about this they don't think that any challenge that that might be filed using miss core's remarks will work but the danger is that it undermines public confidence in this investigation and remember da willis asked for a special grand jury in part to help insulate herself politically. As Alan mentioned, she's a Democrat. She's investigating Republicans. That looks kind of iffy. But if you can say, hey, I tasked a special grand jury of two dozen Moulton County residents, everyday people who looked at this and recommended X, Y, and Z, and I'm just following them, that's where the the problems could lie. And so um, 
it could be an optics problem more than anything else. Of course, if the DA decides that she wants to pursue charges, that's a decision all her own. And remember, she has to go through a regular grand jury, an entirely separate panel from this one, in order to get any indictments handed up. Um, so there's going to be layers of this. But should this go to a trial phase, remember, all, all the Trump people need to do is convince one of 12 jurors yeah. that there's enough doubt here to to override a case. And so I think that's where the danger is. If this helps hit home to folks that this was not a fair investigation. All right. Um, thank you for that. And tomorrow um, we'll wait for your podcast to hear more. Ouch. We'd like to hear it now, but I get it. You have a, you have a product you need to protect. Uh, Matt, I, I want to talk tomorrow. for a uh, good a couple minutes, Matt. You had a really interesting piece in the Washington Post this morning about a new effort that President Obama is making to create a leadership programs for people, I think, in three cities, Chicago, Detroit, and Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and I just want to, I want to turn to you on this, but let me read a quote that you had in your article from the video that uh, former President Obama released about this. He said, our country is changing. I still believe there's more that unites us than divides us, and that's because I believe in the power of community. Our physical communities, from neighborhoods and schools to offices and churches, bring us together. What is he trying to accomplish here? Um, boy, it's really interesting to hear a nonpartisan effort like this, though, moving forward. Right. And I think that it's a bit of a throwback for Obama's own legacy here, where, you know, I mean, the first time anyone really at the national stage was aware of him was his 2004 DNC speech, where he famously said, there's no red America, there's no blue America, there's the United States of America. And I think that this is a bit of him trying to reprise um, some of that atmosphere where he's saying, I'm not going to be going to try and create my legacy or try and build the next generation of leaders in Washington. A lot of when I talked to, you know, his close aides and allies about this program that he's launching, it was very much a vision of trying to have very tangible projects and solutions in places all across America. That's the vision anyway. And they're starting in, you know, Barack Obama's old stomping grounds, Chicago, Detroit, and Jackson, Mississippi, which was a place that he was inspired to um, go to and help um, people there after the water crisis that is still ongoing, I might, I might point out. Um, where local advocates really showed that there is a strong ability and, and networking capacity there to respond to crises like that. So the goal is to uplift people like that, um, not at the national level, but to make sure that they can actually stay in their communities and continue to do that work. In your interview, you asked whether Atlanta was on the radar. And I think the answer to that is at some point, uh, not too just far down the road, right? Yeah, his people are, are basically cagey about how aggressively they want to expand, or at least they won't be telling the media that because, you know, the, the best laid plans, the best laid of plans can change. But I think that it is clear that they want to be going to not just, you know, the, you know, clear big cities that they want to be targeting, but also a lot of rural communities, mid-sized cities, oh. because there's talent and community everywhere. Yeah, maybe Georgia, Georgia City, maybe not Atlanta. Real quickly, because we're out of time. Um, Chuck, one of the things that I thought was fascinating about this is I've said on the show any number of times, it, the rubber meets the road in local communities, not in Washington, not in a Congress that can't do anything. It's when people get together in their municipal governments and actually try to solve problems, which is another thing that's fascinating about uh, this effort by Obama, Chuck. 
Yeah, and uh, to tie this back into some of our earlier conversation, part of the problem now in trying to resolve things locally is that we often now see state legislatures stepping in and making it harder for cities to go about yeah. attacking the problem. They know what, what the biggest problems are. Uh, Alan, real quick. Well, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing the same kind of national issues and national divisions play out at the local level uh, increasingly in American politics and school boards, you know, in, in, in city councils and so on. Alan Abramovich, Chuck Bullock, Matt Brown, Jamar Hallerman, we're out of time. See you all tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>